0: Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.com to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional
1: and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Kieran Luke, COO at Food Tech Lunchbox. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Kieran charted his course to tech leadership via a non-traditional route, working as a consultant at BCG prior to attaining an MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. After graduation, Kieran went back into consulting before making the leap to general assembly, where eventually he rose to the position of co-COO. In this episode, we talk about the role of the COO, the importance of managing cash flow when pivoting, and the critical need of bias for action. Kieran provides great insights into what kind of person should really work at a startup, given the financial trade-offs, and offers illuminating insights into scaling general assembly, overcoming imposter syndrome, and designing a career path. Welcome to Adventures in Growth.
0: Kieran Luke, welcome to Adventures in Growth.
2: Thank you. Great to be here, Dan.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you on. Lots to unpack in terms of your experience at Lunchbox and General Assembly, and we'll dig into your experience as a CEO. So, a full show today, and looking forward to talking to you about those experiences. So excited to be here. Who shouldn't join a startup? I think people get attracted to the allure of this notion of it's high growth, it's fast paced, you're going to change the world, have a big impact. But in reality, a lot of it is just grind and bad culture and actually kind of drudgery work. And you hope that you have the great outcome but often that's not the case. Like the vast majority of startups fail. That's the reality, or they don't have the outcome you, you that changes your life.
2: I don't know if you guys have like the pitch book, like data set or whatever, but I feel like it's some striking number in the 90% of, of, of companies that don't make it to an outcome. So it's pretty rough out there. Have you guys heard this sort of piece about like your career is in three thirds and like, you know, we obviously met the first third year first 15 years you're accumulating knowledge you're going on different adventures the second third is all about then trying to make bank really and like get the dividends paid from the knowledge you've acquired and the third third being go be professor pesenko or kramer or whoever and give back with your time and your knowledge right like that's sort of the ideal arc i feel like you could take a crack at a startup a couple of times in the first third but after that like you kind of need to find a way to provide if part of your goal is is, is financial freedom, right, and, and, and having a good retirement. So But I think
0: it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I do think the last ten years have distorted what people thought was possible. And so if, you know there's that sense of join a high growth startup, run with that while it hopefully gets to an IPO and make loads of money doing so. And I think you've seen a lot of people move towards that. And what I've seen, and I've seen this with friends where suddenly the music has stopped and a lot of those startups have gone bust. And actually the financial payout, the financial reward that was expected isn't there. And now suddenly you're in this position to your point of, well, what do you do? Cause you know, the, the path of, I think a lot of the larger tech companies are like traditional corporates. They want someone who's comfortable in a traditional corporate environment. And I think the, the skill sets of someone who's at a startup is different to someone who's at a large corporate. And those two things aren't always aligned. And I think I've seen this myself, I've seen this with friends. It's trying to figure out where do you land when the market is as it is currently, where there's not a lot of hiring across the board in in certain types of environments. So I think it is I think it's forcing people to really reevaluate the the risk reward trade off of going into startups, which frankly isn't the worst thing, right? I think it's good to have a bit more rationality. I think it.
2: I think it is. And maybe something that just came to my head is it might also just be a supply demand, like macroeconomics thing, where because in the early 2010s, there were great stories, there were great exits, you had this rush of both capital, you know, money and human capital sort of go into the startup sector, right? Therefore, crowding out the potential outsized returns that you might possibly get. So, all of a sudden, instead of having maybe a I don't know, 10% chance of a, of a strong outcome. You have to be in the top decile of, you know, startups. All of a sudden, you've got to be in the top fraction of a percent. It might just be that the, the same number of, the same value of economic returns is just spread across so much more capital and so many more founders, right? And so if the story is actually it's really hard, the returns, you know, 2xing or 3X, 3xing that the money is really hard, and less capital comes in and less people come in, then the people remaining maybe have more music to dance around, right?
0: I totally agree. I think you'll see a flight to quality. And I I saw this a bit when I worked in trading. So I joined equities, and I won't say when because it gives away my age, but I joined equities past that point when equities was still a growth market. It, It had become commoditized, and it was already being eaten away at the margin by technology. So the role of a trader and a sales trader was diminishing in value. And so you saw, you know, what had been a very traditionally buoyant market with lots of small brokers and small banks making money was consolidated because the margins weren't there to support an ecosystem of 20, 30, 40, 50 brokers and 30 or 40 banks trading markets where, as you say, there was so much capital, there's a lot of efficiency already, and it was difficult to make outsized returns. And I think the same thing here is true in venture, where because so much capital is flooded in companies that shouldn't have been funded have been funded. and Now you've seen that bubble burst, but I think what you'll see is greater concentration around startups that should be funded and are truly venture scale and those that aren't. And I think the nice thing about existing technology, current new technologies like AI is it's going to give opportunities for those businesses that should be bootstrapped or organically grown to thrive. Whereas before I think those people would have sought venture and they probably shouldn't have done.
2: Yes, I think that's right. I think that you could – so basically you can get more done with the fewer people you have and therefore not require as much funding and then also hopefully at the same time have a bit of a flight to quality where, you know, you don't have as much, you know, flooding of competition and oversupply of people and, and, and like, honestly the same idea being pursued at, like, a dozen different companies.
0: Exactly right. Yeah. But for you, when you made that leap from – Consulting into the startup world, how did you make that risk reward evaluation? Like, what were the considerations in your mind of making that jump, and how did you evaluate that?
2: Well, I'm a really risk averse person. So, I think my calculus was more around what's the worst that could happen. I had been at BCG for eight years. I thought to myself, and that that was my first job out of undergrad. So, my view was hey, like, I've had a really good run, I've just made principal. If I go out into startups and try something else and it fails, I just come back in a year or two and what's the difference? Like a lot of consultants go off and do a secondment or do something that you know broadens out their experience and they can come back and actually be a better advisor later with that experience of having run something. So that was my view. I'll go out, I'll try and do something. If it works, I'll stay. If it doesn't work. It's, it's no problem. So it was a bit of a I I'd built enough, I think, of a professional base where I could have gone back, and that was, and, and that's what made me feel safe about going in the first place.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Did you feel like, for you to that point, how did you measure what you would get from the experience to make that determination about whether to stick or twist? You know, were there certain things in your mind you wanted to get from your role at General Assembly to keep you on that path, and did you have a time frame that you were evaluating them over?
2: No, I don't think that I did. I don't think I was that deliberate or that smart about it. It was more of a case of like, I have extinguished the energy that I have to give in consulting right now. I've done it for eight years. I need a new adventure. I need a different stimulus. I need to continue, I think, my process as a human of going out and seeing different parts of the world. And that's kind of what led me from like, I grew up in Canberra. I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to to see more of the world. I got to Sydney. I thought, this is the world. And then I was like, actually, it's not the world. There's like, oh, I, I can do a project in, in different parts of Australia or, or, or in Asia. And then coming to America was like, oh my God, I get to come to America. And so I think like throughout my life, I've found myself wanting just to explore and, and find. And so for me, it was like, I really want to go out and try something new. And I feel like now's the right time where I feel safe doing so with enough professional experience and skills to, to contribute. And I think. Maybe implicitly, I was looking for okay, hopefully, I can get a financial return on my time that is at least equivalent with, if not better, than my current path. Right? Hopefully, I can go learn some skills that I couldn't get by being an advisor. And I think the third thing was hopefully, I can, you know, have a richness in my life and a sense of adventure and experience that makes me feel like you know it was worth waking up and, and like going on that you know so i think those were the three things that if i look back i can implicitly say, were, were implicit in me but at the time it was more of a case of i need to change right like it wasn't so strategic or so like i need these things this is my criteria out. for it yeah. to yeah exactly it wasn't it wasn't that smart did,
0: did you always have in your mind going into that COO type role or was that to that point a little bit more accidental and circumstantial? Like when you, cause when you, when you made that leap to GA, did you have a path in your mind that you wanted to be on the operating side or was it much more short no, around what's it, the uh,
2: immediate opportunity in front of you? I think actually the dream was to be a founder. I think the dream was to be, gosh, like what a way to live in this world. If you can be a founder, create something bigger than yourself. Build something that's, that's lasting and be the person who started it. What an incredible like story and experience that would be. And I think, you know, in retrospect, like I have many of the, I think the stereotypical attributes that maybe you'd look for in a founder, but I'm also really risk averse and really I look for confirmation from others, which is maybe not, not necessarily, you know, a traditional founder trait. And so the first job at general assembly was literally to start a new business unit inside the company. And so for me, it was like, oh, I get to essentially start like a new business with the tutelage of some really experienced founders. I get to do it with almost zero risk. Like, I'm not going out to fundraise. I'm doing it with the existing resources of the company and a brand that's already established. And I thought of it as maybe if that goes well, I'll learn what I need to then go start a company next. Like, that was, I think, the thinking back in 2014. Of course, by the time I did. Like got through that part of like the journey, you know, then I was sort of into the, we're married, we're thinking about having kids and going back to the founder out at that point was like, it didn't make life sense anymore. It was too much risk. And then I think I was, you know, lucky for sure to, to get the tap on the shoulder to become COO after the, after we got acquired. So that was more of a, maybe a happy accident as a result of some good work and some good luck.
0: How did you make that leap to GA? So I know you talked in the past about the importance of networking. You talked about that trade-off, but what, what approach did you take when you going through that investigative process of determining where to land after BCG? What, what principles or what approach did you find really effective to help you identify that next thing?
2: I think that I had a pretty – strong thesis that I wanted to work in education at the time and so sort of my life story was I really struggled as a kid in Australia, was really lonely, didn't really have any friends and what kind of I think helped me build my own self-esteem was a teacher in year four who helped me realize that wait I could be a really good student and he sort of took me from mediocre to like A top student kind of profile and that gave me I think the self-esteem to start making friends where I could help you know classmates with their homework and that sort of created I think the thread towards oh actually we can hang out you know and I and so I felt like education had this incredible impact on my life and then even at Kellogg I was like gosh like I get to move across the world and meet all these people from all different countries all here, like it's such a enriching experience. And I just thought that the thing missing from education was like the guidance, like in your career and being able to switch and being able to do different things and see more of the world. That's what I loved about General Assembly when I sort of learned about the brand. And it's also even before I joined General Assembly, I had built some online courses that are still there, they like teaching Excel, teaching PowerPoint. And so I had dabbled in wanting to be a founder, dabbled in wanting to make an impact in making education improved in some way. And so when I was networking, I was doing, I think, what everybody does, which is trying to have as many conversations as you can. But I was able to contribute a point of view on education from my own personal experience, which I think helps you connect as a human. And I was also able to say, hey, I built these courses. This is what I've learned. These are the different like, ways I think about the different opportunity sets in the market." And maybe the last thing was, like, this is probably the ex-consultant in me as well, but whenever, like, in the interview process, there was an opportunity to do a little bit of work and and sort of write down some thoughts, you know, put a deck together, put a model together, you know, put a plan together, I was very happy to do that. And I think that was very compelling, certainly to, to the team at, at GA. They were like, okay, we don't normally hire ex-consultants into – or MBAs, as it were, into – into our company, like you're not startup people, but I demonstrated that no, like your stereotype of an MBA that just like, you know, talks and has, you know, no substance behind it is broken by the fact that I did some work and the work made you think and the work shows that I could actually push this forward if I was on the inside. I
0: love that advice. Cause I do think there is a still, I think it's less because the, the startup scene has expanded so much, but there is still that perception of MBA students sometimes as, you know, being a certain type of, as you say, sort of idea-orientated, not action-orientated. Totally. But for you making that leap from consulting as well, what, what skill sets or what things were useful as someone switching into tech coming from that consulting background?
2: I mean, so many things. I think for sure, first of all, being able to understand like at a high level the market and like the size of it and what is your, what might be your strategy and the products to unlock large TAM number one. Number two would be taking a problem and being able to break it down into its component pieces so you can then go away and have like a plan of, okay, I'm going to go do these things and like making it tangible in a way that it becomes like a checkoff item on a to-do list versus like a big ambiguous problem. I think that the third is like comfort with data. I think every startup now is like, Analyzing its sales funnel or is optimizing some kind of process where you're bringing some kind of intelligence to it. And so, if you're able to then manipulate that to say, okay, if we just improve our effort here, you know, the goal style or some other like analogy like that, like, you know, here's the impact, you know. So, what do we say? We said like understanding like TAM and, and sort of financial investment, understanding how to break a problem down, understanding how to use data. And then to the extent you can pull that all together into a story to inspire humans to go do stuff. That's a nice, like, you know, fourth one to round out like the the hard and soft side of it.
1: Are there any skills that you think that people who've been in consulting for a while need to, I guess, deprioritize or or habits they need to unlearn kind of top of mind as you're helping people transition Um, into tech? I think
2: my initial reaction is no, but there are like, in terms of the skills, but I think there's habits that are associated with, you know, idea oriented talkers that aren't act, like aren't going to be action oriented. I think sometimes there's verbal ticks, like talking a lot before you get to the main headline. I think is probably the one that comes to mind where you could instead of just saying, Hey, we should close off that business line. <laughs> Say that's like the insight, right? You kind of go through the whole thought process of like the analysis and everything. And like you've lost the audience at the beginning. And I feel like a lot of MBAs and consultants tend to do that. They tend to provide a lot of context and the headline gets stuck at the back. And, and that I think isn't so much a skill to to deprioritize as it is a trap to avoid falling into because it exacerbates every stereotype that people assume that you fit into.
0: Do you think to that end that the role as a COO is naturally suited to that skill set or someone who thinks in that way? Because when you were evaluating what role you wanted in startups, did you think about that type of skill set that you developed as a consultant and probably have some innate capability towards anyway, based on what you're saying. Do you think that that path towards CEO is a very natural one for someone to follow? Or did you explore other roles like product or even the marketing side of things?
2: That's such an interesting question. I think for me, it was really more about finding a mentor and a career, like someone that I looked at and thought like, oh, I want to be like you one day. And for us, it was our COO, like at General Assembly. I I looked at Scott and I was like, oh, like I, so Jake was our CEO and Scott was our our COO and president and both really inspiring people. I knew that I could never be Jake. Like Jake was, the way he thought was so non-linear and just so creative that like, that's, I, I was never going to be able to replicate that. I couldn't think the way he thought. It's like, it's like when you see someone draw and you're like, and, you, and you're someone who can't draw or someone playing music and you can't play music, you know, you can't speak that language and you just admire it for what it is. In Scott, I found someone where I was like, oh, he's light years ahead of me in his capability, but I can kind of imagine being him. And I like the job he has. His job is, it's in the numbers. It's making sure we hit those numbers on the top line and bottom line. His job is basically whatever the worst problem, like it's assessing the company and whatever the worst problem is. Okay. Go tackle that problem. Right. Like it's communicating the story to, you know, the entire employee base in a way that, you know, gets the essence of what we're trying to do together and how their piece fits into it. All of that felt like very attainable if I worked hard and had the opportunity. And so for me, it was more like, Oh, like I want to be him when I grow up as opposed to me thinking about the different functions of a company, as it were. And if I did think about the different functions, I always found product to be fascinating because, you know, I think I'm motivated by putting something of high quality out into the world that people enjoy, right, and find value out of. And I think that maybe that speaks to my story as a kid not fitting in, wanting to provide something of value. It sort of speaks to why did I make like, why did I make an Excel course or a PowerPoint course? It's because I was like, Oh, the way we learn Excel at business school or at BCG doesn't make any sense. What you really want to do is watch someone do it well and have someone explain with context how it's put into action. So I wanted to put out a quality product. So for me, like there was an innate product interest, but I think the mentor and career, like, you know, example that, that Scott was sort of pulled me back in that sort of COO direction.
0: It's funny you mentioned that because we've had other guests say the same thing in terms of both positively and negatively saying, well, I, I knew I didn't want to be that person, right? Or I really, really right. admired this boss who inspired me and gave me this support they needed to grow. And I think that's such an important determinant, isn't it, of to some degree where you see yourself or how you see yourself evolving. Because I think, as you mentioned, a good teacher can make or break a course for you in the same way a good manager or a good good boss can make or break a function for you or a, an opportunity. And, th- and the best bosses inspire and actually motivate you to try and mimic their behavior. And the worst ones, I think 95% of people basically quit because of their boss, right? In reality. And so it's hear- yeah. interesting hearing you say that, but you touched on a few things there in terms of Scott's role, but to that end, what you see you're, you're, you're smiling, he's probably thinking back to a couple of managers you may have had, but in terms of you touched on Scott's, it. Tell us a little bit about what the role of COO is, because I think it's I think it's helpful to unpack what does your day to day look like and what are your responsibilities from a more strategic point of view.
2: Yeah, you know it's a really interesting role that it does boil down to solving whatever the problem de jour or de month is, and I think there's there's actually a great I think it's an HBR article called Seven Archetypes of COO that. I had read and found like describes it perfectly in terms of it ends up being whatever the CEO, or the CEO doesn't want. If that makes sense. If you've got a product CEO, then, you know, it's that you've got a very financially based CEO, then it's the, you know, the, the inverse of that. And so in my case at Lunchbox, it's been, it's been different depending on the quarter. Initially, my job was basically assess the entire leadership team that we have and, you know, move on the people that aren't going to take us to the next level and invest in those that can and, and sort of get us to a point where we have a leadership team that's, that's able to take us to the next phase of the company. The second phase was really, I think, around processes in our, in our customer team and about saying, okay, where are the bottlenecks in getting some of our customers live and understanding that and resetting some of the processes? So I had sort of a tour of duty on the customer team. Then the next tour of duty I had was on our go-to-market, where I spent a lot of time, you know, fixing our data with in terms of our funnel. And then, you know, doing the classical thing of saying, okay, we have this many channels generating this many leads. This many leads convert these various percentages, depending on where they came from and therefore converted these sort of deal sizes to get us revenue at the end and then looking at that and saying okay sorry guys we're going to have to stop like we're going to completely cut off spending on these channels because it's just setting money on fire and hey we're getting a really good return from this partnerships thing but we're not spending any money on it we're not really doing anything actively against that we need to like invest more in developing that part of the strategy right so it was you know your classic diagnostic you know, very systematic approach, looking at the different sources of, of growth and in investing in the ones that, that are working. My most recent tour of duty after that has been in finance because markets went cold, we knew we had to extend our runway, and so it was Kieran like we need, like how much money do we need to save to last for how long and then go execute on the layoffs and the cost reductions in order to uh, give us the time we need to grow into a company that could survive and thrive into, you know, a next round of funding, you know? So I think my journey is pff, I, I doubt it's that different from my peers in that it's just whatever, whatever the company needs at that time and it's, and it's very much a, a function of what the CEO wants to do or not want to do. You're very much like a number two and, you know, you have to develop a, tr- a great partnership and so sorry it's a function of what the CEO doesn't want to do and what the company needs needs at the time. So,
0: yeah, you mentioned just you alluded to it there, you talked about cost cutting. And it's interesting because we'll talk about GA in a second, but most recently you've had that experience of going the other way of of having to reduce headcount. Can you tell us a little a little bit about that? And your role and how you approached that challenge of, as you mentioned, evaluating the change in market and the company position relative to that and how you had to think about taking a really large scaled up organization back to a more manageable size.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, it was pretty unfortunate. I think we probably were among many companies over the past 12 months that's that's had to worry about that. I'd say, first of all, like the story of Lunchbox was that we basically overhired behind a product that wasn't quite ready for that level of scale and what we needed to do and if in hindsight what we should have done was solidify the scalability of the product first and then scale a little bit more you know conservatively as you as we saw like you know the winds pile up but of course because you got so much money going to startups and because there's such a chase for growth it's like oh you see like a little flash of product market fit and you dump a lot of money into it and off you go right And so what happened in our case was actually it's like, okay, we see that the the funding is going to get cut off soon. We see some warning signs in our product and its inability to scale on certain metrics around getting customers live and our ability to make more changes and innovations to it like was slowing down. And based on the financials behind it, like I knew pretty early that it wasn't going to work. We didn't have enough revenue to support that large of a family. Or that large of a team. Right. So my approach to it was very much like, okay, top down, like how many sal- how much salary can this company actually fund right now? Right. With any kind of reasonable, you know, metric around burn multiples, around runway, things like that. That gave us a sense of, okay, we've got to get to this target number. And beyond that, you're really placing chips, right? You're really building your organization from scratch around. You know, how much do you want to fund, you know, engineering a product? How much do you want to fund marketing and, and sales? How much, you know, and then there's maybe some non-negotiables around customer support, customer onboarding, that kind of stuff you you kind of start with at the beginning and then you, you build everything else around it.
0: You mentioned before, obviously, having to reduce the workforce quite significantly at Lunchbox. But tell us what were the most important principles you tried to adhere to as you managed The process but also the human aspect of that because it's quite obviously any you know you do the analysis and you run those numbers but fundamentally these are people at the end of the day yes how did you approach that
2: i think that i think that it's it's really hard but the principles are relatively straightforward i think first of all you want to treat people with respect and you want to make sure that you're funding some level of severance right as well as mobilizing all of the help that you can based on your community in terms of finding these people new jobs right so we did all of that around providing a, a severance package that was generous we made sure that we had a list that we were distributing where people could opt in and say yes I want to be on a list that where where other companies can hunt for you know our, our alumni in terms of talent so i think respect is one i think the second is You've got to be transparent with people, and you've got to do do it quick, right? You can't let it drag out. So, I think that we tried once once we made the decision to go in this way, we tried to move within just a couple of weeks, really. We didn't give ourselves a lot of time to plan because we didn't want word to get out, and we wanted to to we didn't want any, any of this to fester. So, we moved super quick, and we did it with a small group to make sure that the the word didn't go out. And then I think the third thing is, of course, like from a company point of view, like you're doing this because you're trying to help the company survive. And so you do need to make sure that you're keeping enough of the people that the company really depends on that know the most about, you know, a certain process or a certain customer or a certain product and the plan for how we're going to, to you know, rewire it. So you're being obviously strategic around, you know, who it is you need to make sure you keep. And on the other side of it, the story that you need to make sure that they all know is, hey, like, this sucks. Like, this is our bad. We overhired. Prevention is, is the best medicine and we didn't prevent this. And But, in, you know, the, what's the second best thing is to help make sure the company survives, right? And so you tell the story transparently to the survivors as well. So this is what we're doing for our friends that we've had to let go. But this is the opportunity that's still ahead of us that are here, right? So I think that, I guess to sum it back up, like respect, transparency, speed, and then some element of inspiring the the, the remaining staff that this is for the greater good and it's going to work out, right? It, hope is not lost.
0: You, you talked about before as well, how did you identify who you would hold on to and who you would let go
2: there's a bunch of rules around what you can do and what you can't do from a from an HR perspective, right? I think that the main principles that we adhered to were, first of all, from a bird's eye view, how much can we afford for each department to carry, right? So, there's sort of a budget for each department. Then within that, like, who are the most important people to keep? And that's going to be a mixture of their tenure. That's going to be a mixture of like their performance. That's going to be a mixture of what they know and how important they are to the initiatives that we are prioritizing after the riff. So all of that is a discussion with all of those metrics and, and, and pieces of information in play. And then, and then you go from there.
0: Yeah. You, you shared a story previously about your CEO, which gave, I think, a really valuable insight into the mind of a founder and how he made an evaluation, which I think, you know, to come back to your point about, do you found or do you join an opportunity to build a business internally, I think gives quite a stark insight into whether or not you, you as a person or anyone listening has what it takes. Can you, would you be willing to share that with us?
2: Yeah, I think it's, I think there was a story about the problems like we wanted to unpack in our sales team, right? That's right. That story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that one was one where I think I learned that you can go a lot faster than you think, or you can get a, a, a sort of a, a shitty first version of the answer really quick. And so, basically, I had done the analysis. I had gone through all of our sales data and realized that we had a big sales problem in terms of our sales efficiency um, and the return we were getting from that that spend. And I said, "Hey, Nabil, the next step is I'm going to go and do like a diagnostic of what's." causing all of that inefficiency like what are the levers we can pull to improve this and he sort of nodded to me and he said okay that's great the next day he calls me and he goes hey so i think i have all the answers to to your questions i said what do you mean he goes i spent five hours yesterday speaking to every single person on the sales team and related in 15 minute increments and i spoke to you know 25 people And I have like patterns from all those conversations. And I think like they make sense. And so he had completely cleared his calendar (laughs) for the previous day. Said there's no more important problem than figuring out what's like causing our sales to not work. And in that, not only did he get like, you know, the top three or four drivers of, of underperformance, but he also got like a sense of who's really who's on it, who's sharp, who knows what they're talking about, who has a perspective beyond, you know, what they're told to do, you know. And so it was an, in, it, was an incre- it was incredible speed. It was an incredible bias towards action. It was, you know, incredible initiative and just showed like, you know, you can really get a lot done quickly if you just go for it.
0: How do you react to that how does that make you feel because you know if you're thinking well you're moving fast but you're more deliberative you're doing the analysis and then you see your ceo just being like "Ah, clear my calendar do everything do you feel that puts you under pressure or does that inspire you to act faster or with less information at your fingertips i think it's inspiring
2: like i was like oh that's so like why didn't i do that and i put like I can pull that move. You know, the CEO can pull people into a meeting and they have to attend. Like, the CEO can do the same thing, you know? So I found it to be eye-opening. I found it to to break my assumptions of, like, how you might go about solving something. And it also, I think, is a nice way of making it collaborative. I think the team enjoys it. The team enjoys being asked, oh, like the C-suite's trying to get my perspective on something, right? So I found it to be one of the, like it's one of the tools that I've learned and, and, and sort of take away from this experience so far.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to have an inspiring leader. You mentioned actually a GA. You've already talked about Scott and Jake. What were the important things for you from General Assembly that set you up for success later? You, what were the lessons you took from that experience, building that business that has put you in the position you are today?
2: I think that it was exposure to a lot of different activities like jobs you have to do. And it was the confidence of realizing that I can do it, you know, more than than one skill. It was that self-belief that I think I didn't necessarily have at the start of the journey. Like, I think one of the first things I had to do at General Assembly was build a team and realize that the person that I was initially working with wasn't the right fit. So I had to have that self-belief and self-confidence that, yes, it's actually OK to say you're not the right person for the team. Sorry, we're going to replace you with somebody else. Right. The second thing I had to do was because we were building a business line from scratch, had to get customers. Right. So I like. It turns out that developing a, a target customer list and profile, and getting a whole bunch of phone numbers and emails, and just contacting people, is something that you can do. Right. You can You can absolutely. And then in those conversations, you'll absolutely learn how to sharpen your pitch. And you'll absolutely learn how to sh- you know, maybe reframe your 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 value proposition in a way that's more compelling, right? You know, once we had that, the next thing we had to do was build a, like an initial prototype, right, for the product that we were promising. Turns out that like you know you can go figure out how to do that too, right? You got to obviously pull together uh, all those elements of a product and and get a paper version out there, right? So, I think that. At a GM level back in 2014, those were some of the more, you know, ground level things that I had to do that gave me a lot of confidence that, okay, I know what it means to start a business. And then I think in the COO seat, it was similar where it was like, okay, like, you have the reins now, you get to actually say, like, you know, I had observed the leadership team for four years prior to becoming COO, and I had a whole bunch of things that I wanted to change. Right, so I got to actually go through the process of saying, "Okay, we're going to validate these key priorities for the company. We're going to sell them into the organization, right? In terms of convincing people of the case for change, and we're going to do it." Right. So, in terms of instituting a growth strategy, like we were basically doing a lot more semi-remote courses that we previously were just tinkering in. So, it was doing a lot more of that. The second thing that happened was COVID happened. And we had to lead the company through, okay, we're shutting down our campuses. We're going completely virtual. There's some elements of the company that we're going to have to consider like furloughing or laying off, right? There's a huge, I think, decision-making and a communication challenge of that whole chapter. And so I think having gone through that, it was like, oh, I can deal with difficult decisions right like it's again that sort of exposure that opportunity to prove to yourself more than to anyone external that actually i trust myself enough with this you know and i think that is the biggest unlock i think in becoming a leader and maybe you know that's 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 one of the more basic and yet like important things that i've learned
0: you mentioned that previously that change in mindset that you needed can you talk a little bit more about that? Because, you, you, as you said, I think you, you proved to yourself you could do these things. But we've heard the same thing consistently from people we've spoken to, that sense of actually perhaps you being the biggest obstacle to your own success or own progress because of that sort of, as you say, lack of self-belief maybe. But you talked about imposter syndrome. How, was it the experience at GA that helped you get over that, or was it the mentorship you received at GA and then subsequently?
2: Uh, I think it's all of the above. So – I think that if I could pinpoint three things that really helped, one would be just being given the opportunity. Like obviously that's really important and that gives you a chance to put the runs on the board as it were. The second is I had an executive coach who she's terrific. Her name's Helen Appleby. And she essentially made me undress myself as it were, like and learn about like why I am the way I am. And she Basically dug up all of my childhood insecurities, like made me figure out like why I do what I do and really dredged up a lot of pain, actually. But what that did was it put me more at ease with who I was and why I was the way I am and made me feel like, okay, I've got nothing to hide. Like I'm going to go out there and do the best I can and it's good enough. Like it it was really about a a path of self-acceptance and like i had this just this i had no idea i had this deep underlying fear that i'm just not good enough and so recognizing that was the unlock to then saying actually no i got this and then i think the third was i had good colleagues (laughs) i had really good colleagues at ga so you know i had a co clo who's still a dear friend of mine we had really good gms of 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 a couple of business units We had a really good set of HR leaders. We had a really, really good head of marketing, right? So I think like that all it wasn't, you know, that obviously helps to have good players in those seats, but it's also good in terms of like getting feedback and getting confidence that, okay, like this is working, you know?
1: Any advice you might have for in our listeners who are trying to think about developing their, their own teams and their own people and instilling them with that confidence and, and mentoring them? It sounds like you've, you've had some really great experiences, but as you're kind of thinking about that for, for your own teams and, and your own reports, any advice you have for folks? I think that, I don't know how much advice it is. I think I have
2: an observation, Andy, which is that General Assembly did an incredible job of attracting talent. And I think maybe the, the community it drew in was almost more impressive than the business model innovations that it ushered in in terms of like what it did for the accelerated learning space. But I think that what that means is when you have a set of founders that can tell a story about the mission and impact on the world, you really attract in a different level of talent. You really bring in people who really believe and want to give of themselves. And that then is the thread between all of you that Allows you to build really deep relationships and have mentorship, have friendship, and creates the conditions whereby some of these lucky, you know, interactions happen where that you get a lot of value out of and you contribute to as well. I think there's I think the corollary is there's I think a lot of synthetic startups out there that are manufactured because an investor thought a certain segment was attractive based on certain metrics and tried to like cobble together a team. And I think I don't know, uh, this is me speculating, but I suspect that that doesn't quite lead to the same depth of connection. And therefore, you're not going to, there's going to be exceptions to this, but you're not likely to get the same sense of belonging and investment in, in a company.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I do think there are a lot of startups where I think by nature, it attracts people who can be quite transactional and are hoping to come back to your point at the very start around risk reward and the payoff of joining a startup. You get people who are looking and hoping that that startup will be the one that hits the home run. And as a result, you see it quite often where if the startup has a good growth period, but then fails, it sheds employees because they realize their stock's going to be worth nothing. And they were there and they were happy to to ride the tiger to some degree and put up with all the dysfunction that every startup has. But as soon as that startup hits some turbulence, they bail. And I think that's because, to your point, the culture doesn't exist. the The mission doesn't exist. The right. bigger picture of actually providing value and impact isn't there because people just joined because they thought, that startup's going to go to the moon and I don't really care so much about the actual Correct. business or, or the customer. And I think you're seeing that a little bit now. And and I think it's always going to be there to some degree, given the nature of the market.
2: hundred percent. I think, and, and if you look at the big tech companies, I think that, you know, Bezos and the customer centricity like was something that he, he shone through from the start. I think like you see a similar story with all of those really huge companies where they were able to create almost a cult, you know, if you're sort of bashing them around like the mission around what the company was trying to do. But I think it's really important.
0: Yeah. You you speak very glowingly of GA. Just for, for our listeners' sake, tell us a little bit about your story there. And you mentioned, obviously, you joined to grow that business, but it, you had a great run and some really great experiences. Can you just expand a little bit more on that and give us some insight into your experience through that that growth and then eventual sale
2: yeah sure i mean general assembly for those of you that don't know is 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 a pioneer in adult education and created the concept of the coding boot camp which of course ended up being commoditized but what ga did was it created an incredible community around the idea of a career changing boot camp it created evening courses that were a like a almost an appetizer into the full career switch. And then it parlayed that consumer brand and sense of this is where you come to, to, you know, work hard for a better life and, and something interesting into a B2B business to train employees inside of companies. And so when we were founded in 2011, it was a co-working space for startups to, sh- to trade skills with each other. It then pivoted into, okay, actually trading skills is like a real business in of itself. And then it pivoted into, okay, but like for a sustainable revenue model, you know, we can translate this, a bit of this like magic of general assembly into companies. And so when we exited in 2018 to the ADECO group, they were buying the products that we had created largely for a B2B audience to plug into their, you know, global network of of clients that largely bought staffing products from them. My job initially was to try to create some defensibility for the consumer business by creating essentially a CFA for coding, right? The idea was like, there's no standards here. Companies don't know whether to employ our graduates because like, how do you demonstrate they're any good? Let's create a standard. And by the way, that standard is an excellent business, you know, per CFA or per CPA or any of these kinds of, or GMAT, right, for, 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 for this listener group. Gma is a fantastic business. And so I quickly realized that, okay, that was really swimming upstream. It was going to be really hard to cobble together a standard because there's so many different parts of coding in terms of the, you know, front end and back end. There is so many different languages, right? And so one standard that like hiring managers would agree on wasn't going to work. And it's there, which is a carrot. And what Carrot does is interviewing as a service. And it turned out that scaling interviewing, like coding interviews, was a better solve to that problem than a CFA-type product, right? What happened was when we were trying to build the coding standard, the L'Oreal reached out to me and said, hey, like, we love what you're doing. And we we need a standard in digital marketing. And I said, tell me more. And so they're like, we want to build a coalition Of companies that hire digital marketers and create a sense of like marketing is, is changing. It used to be segmentation, targeting, positioning. It's still that, but we've got to add the, you know, the, the digital element to it. And we need, we need an exam. We want to create the DMAT, what they wanted to call it, like the GMAT, but we didn't brand it that way in the end, but it ended up being the, like that, that was the anchor customer to a key product of us, which was what we called the CM1 on a certified marketer level one and and the CM2. And we ended up using that to then sell marketing courses and provide upskilling for existing marketers, adding that digital component. That then helped us to scale and grow the the B2B enterprise business, which then allowed us to exit to the ADECO group because they weren't so much interested in our consumer brand as they were interested in our B2B services. So that was the arc of you know time at, at GA. And I think that I speak globally of it because I met so many great people along the way. I was inspired by the mission and still am. I got to build something that I'm proud of. I got to learn a lot. And I also got, obviously, some luck along the way. Like the initial thing that I was trying to build completely didn't work, but got the attention of you know, an anchor client that wanted to build something analogous in a different space. So it was a really interesting set of experiences that, that worked out.
0: But I think that's a key lesson, isn't it? Because the thing you assume is gonna be the solution is often not the solution, but it's right. you learn by doing and the contact you have with the customers in the target market helps you actually identify what the true need is. And as long as you're open to that opportunity and listening, then you can you can make to use that phrase pivot, which I think gets overused, but you can genuinely right. adjust the business right. to focus if you if you have that mindset. Right. How did your role change after the acquisition? Did you become co-CEO before, or was that after Adeco bought you?
2: It was after we got acquired and Scott, you know, my you know, mentor and career hero, he sort of moved on to another education company and became CEO there, which left a vacuum in his place. And and that's when when I got tapped on the shoulder to to step up. And so obviously the role changed dramatically at that point because not only was Scott leaving but Jake had also, I think, post-exit, you know, he he had rightfully become less active as CEO. He was more of a, like, a, in a chairman type role, still inspirational, still sort of setting an overall vision, but not so into the day-to-day, like, running of the company. And so, ended up being a co-CEO role with with Liz, which in many ways was a co-CEO role because Jake had given us that much latitude to, to actually, you know, lead in his stead.
0: What well- Motivated you to make the leap from GA to to Lunchbox?
2: I mean, six years is a is a really long run, and I think that I had reached a similar point where we were, you know, we were solving a lot of the same problems, and I was, you know, excited to take what I had learned and apply it to a new company that was pre exit, right? And I wanted to go and do it again, right? And hope, for, you know, and maybe maybe see if I could play Scott's role in a younger company. And so there was a bit of a natural sort of order of things where, you know, post-acquisition, it just made sense. And then there was also a a hunger of, from me personally, that, hey, like, let's go on a new adventure. It's it's time. When you
0: went to Lunchbox, what did you do to ensure your success in the first 90 days? How did you make that impression to give yourself latitude?
2: So so funny you say that, because what's that book called? The first 90 or first 100 days, I think. Do you know the book? I mean,
0: someone I think someone else has mentioned it. The first ninety.
2: I think it's it's literally called the first ninety days yes. by Michael Watkins. Yeah, and like my friend Aaron Growl lent it to me. I literally read the book and implemented it almost to a T, almost like a textbook. And it, I think it's a class-leading book for a reason. And it gets like if you can do that, you're eighty percent of the way there. Right. And I think the key concept was that when you started a company in a leadership role, you're a drain, you're expensive, you take up a lot of oxygen and you're contributing zero. So you would, uh, you're a net drag on the company. And, you know, the quicker you can get some wins and actually get yourself above break even, as it were, and start to contribute more than you cost, like if you can shorten that from six months down to five or four or three. Or even less like that's the key and so and then there's all these different ways that you can get those wins whatever the quick wins are are going to be different depending on the company and the situation you're going into but you've got to quickly figure out what that is and do it because otherwise again you're a very expensive drag on the PL. yeah
0: to that end like what off the top of your head do you remember sort of what were the sort of approaches you took for those who haven't read the book or we'll check it out in future but what were the things you did if you remember? Or what were the principles you tried to apply as you were navigating the new organization?
2: I, I just did an assessment. I did an assessment of maybe f- three different things. First of the leadership group. And that's where I think maybe having the self-belief and like pattern recognition to say, okay, like these are the attributes in these re- various positions and, and the person's strengths and weaknesses and whether they're likely to work out or not. The second was by extension the departments and looking at, okay, like what's working and what's not in those and what's the biggest problem holding them back and then the third and you know in hindsight i think the most important is just go straight to the p&l the p&l on the balance sheet like the answer to every as long as the financials are roughly reliable which may or may not be the case in a pre-audit company like all of the insights are, are hanging there waiting for you to find right if it's accounts receivable is your issue, it's hanging there in plain, plain sight, right? If it's like return on marketing spend, like it's hanging there in, in plain sight. Like you can see, like all of it is there. So I think an assessment of the people, the departments and the p kind of really quickly get you to like a list of problems, which you can then prioritize and, you know, make action on.
0: Slight like change of tag because I'm conscious of time, but you've mentioned a couple of times now the risk reward trade-off and providing some clarity around that. Like, what do you mean? Cause you, I think you, you've made clear that the, for a lot of folks getting into startups, they should perhaps at least be aware of what they're getting into in terms of the financial aspects and the reality of those financial aspects. Can you expand a little bit on your thinking on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I'm, I'm speaking largely in financial terms, Like, so, okay, so we're talking to like a Kellogg MBA audience, right? And so what's the average salary at graduation these days? Like 150-ish, I don't know, somewhere in that ballpark, right? At least in the US. And if you go into a top-tier consulting firm, there is a path towards doubling that every several years, right? And, you know, as a partner, you should expect to make seven figures plus. Similarly, like the other big sort of routes are into finance, right? Whether, you know, in various investing roles, similar, if not superior, like earnings profile to that third big path that's been big since our time is tech, right? You know, mid level employee at a big tech company, three, 400 K, like including like all in for sure, maybe more. Right? I'm probably, I, I'm probably out of date in my numbers, right? So there are multiple lucrative, you know, traditional paths to sort of a, a mid-100,000 or even higher sort of earnings profile, right? That's available to, 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 to a Kellogg MBA. I think when you go into an early stage startup, you've got to realize that your compensation is weighted towards the success of the company, right? And then there's a, there's a couple of things that happen with that. One is your cash comp is going to be low. Like the most senior person in the organization is not going to make half a mil. They won't. Right, like, like your top salesperson might make, you know, in that range if you have a massive sales year, but your top executives, you know, if there's benchmarking data available. I think you know they're, they're going to make somewhere in the realms of maybe three to four hundred in cash, right? So, but that's that's the top person, and then and then, you know, you're going to get equity, and the equity is going to be worth something one day. If your company is in the top fraction of a percent of startups that have a big outcome, and when I say big, I'm talking like, you know, a billion exit or in that range, or maybe maybe half a billion, you know, and up, right? And so, at that level, even if you own, say you own a fraction of a percent, like 0.1 of a percent of the company, which is something that, which is the level you might expect when you're a grad, like 0.1 of a percent means that... What's that, guys? At a billion-dollar company, you get one mil, right? So if you, if you worked at an and investor for four years, invest over four years. So if you come out of your MBA and you take on an, like a job at a startup that'll probably pay you less than the 150 average, right, you'll get 0.1% vesting over four years. And if your company sells for a billion dollars, you get one million that vested over four years, so 250 a year. Right. But bear in mind that there's a 1% chance, or I don't know exactly what the data is, but roughly 1% chance that you'll get that kind of outcome. Right. In some very rare cases, Uber, Airbnb, etc., there's going to be a hundred billion dollar outcome. And your 0.1% is not going to be worth one million, but it's actually going to be worth 10 million or a hundred million, you know, in Airbnb's case, right? Because they IPO'd at $90 billion. But that is, That is the rarest of rarefied air, and it's probably not going to be you, right? Like, just as a basic probability sort of question. The other thing that you need to know from the risk-reward standpoint is you're not getting shares. You're getting options to buy the shares. And when you leave a company, you typically have 90 days to exercise your options, which means you need to pay money for them, right? And you may or may not get your money back one day per the story at the start, that horror story where an early employee paid, I think it was a quarter of a million bucks to exercise six, worth, six years worth of vesting only for it to go to zero. You might never see that back, right? So the risk reward is really tough for an employee. In some ways, it, it really makes a lot more sense as the f- founder because then you don't have options, you have shares. First of all, so you don't have to exercise like you own that part of the company, and no one can take that away from you. And second of all, your ownership is in the you know five or ten or fifteen percent range, depending on your role and depending on how much dilution you've taken on. And so you don't need a you don't need a billion dollar outcome. Maybe if you can sell the company for fifty million bucks and you own ten percent, then that's still a a, you know a, a really like life changing amount of money for most people, right? So so the, so I guess to sum up, Dan, sorry, I went on such a long rant there, but lower salary, you know, a share in the company that may or may not be worth anything. And it's not actually a share yet. It's an option. You have to pay money to exercise that share unless you stay there until the company exits, at which point, like you never have to exercise because it's, it's an auto exercise at a liquidity event.
0: Yeah. I think it's a great breakdown of. Some of the, some of the realities of, of the startup world. And I, I think to that end, I think for folks joining, especially in this climate, join because of who you'll be working with and the experience you get, not so much the financial payout. Right. And I think that's perhaps a harsh lesson people are learning now. But in reality, I think that's, it will always see you through because worst case, your equity goes to nothing, but you'll have had some great experience, met some great people, and that will elevate your career. In the long run,
1: maybe to follow up on that, you know, you you kind of frame this a couple of times, you know, in seeking your next adventure and thinking about the phases of, of a career, maybe, you know, in, in parallel, as, as Dan was talking about to the to the kind of financial side, maybe, you know, if you can you know, maybe share a little bit about how you thought about, you know, your your career path from an experiences and adventure standpoint, I think a lot of people are thinking about making the change from uh, professional services into into something else and and maybe that other component about and you know, you've talked about kind of figuring out what kind of life you want to lead any ways that you think about that that would be interesting to to our listeners is there kind of making the same kinds of decisions
2: I think there's no blanket on it you know I feel like you know if I go back and talk to myself gosh how long has it been since I left BCg like nearly like 10 years, like the the decision's the same. Like at that point in my life, it made so much sense for me to move on. And I really think it's about like what I love about what this, like what we're talking about is we're just laying out very transparently The pros and cons and the path to various types of success in terms of your experience, in terms of the people you meet along the way, in terms of your impact, in terms of your financials and everybody. I think the more information that's available, the better a chance somebody has to make a decision that's the right for them in their life. I think that was my initial frustration with education. I was like, Oh, like, you know, you (laughs) straight out of, you know, you go into college, you like do a major, like you're meant to commit to a career, but. Who knows what they want to do when they're 18? Nobody, <laughs> you know, unless maybe you're a professional sports person and you know that you want to do that. But okay. no one knows what they want to do.
0: It's the doctors who start at 18 I'm always impressed with. You know, it's like, how did you yeah. know? Yeah.
2: And so I I really love the idea of putting more information out there and making it accessible and making it transparent and being able to talk about things like compensation because I think it's, it's still a bit of a, you know, oh, hush, hush, don't talk about the money. But that's really important because people need to make a living and people need to know what the trade-offs are and, and, and what the opportunity set is. So I don't think I have a, any particular advice other than, you know, whatever your circumstances are and whatever you want in your life at that time, like, you know, gather more info and, and then make an informed decision.
1: Good advice. All right. Well, we're going to ask you a few uh, quickfire questions here. Are you ready? I'm not
2: actually. You know what the funny thing is? I looked at them just before we came on. I was like, "Oh my god!" Like these are really hard questions, and I didn't prepare, so I might I might have to blank on some of them. But let's just let's just go for it.
1: All right, let's do it. First, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? Persistence slash optimism.
0: What separates a leader from a manager?
2: I think the ability to see like the forest from the trees and oscillate between the high level and the lower level.
1: What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid, given what you know now? Self-recrimination. What don't most people understand about the COO role? That it's just whatever no one else wants to do. and what
2: it, like, It's literally the highest priority that belongs to nobody else.
0: What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people don't?
2: That I believe that most successful people don't luck plays a bigger role
1: than your own, you know, input. What is the most important principle to be a successful leader or manager? Listening.
0: What's your favorite under the radar networking hack?
1: The phone call. Old
2: school. Yeah. I like it.
1: Just to follow up, do you, do you text someone beforehand you're going to call or just call out of the blue? I call, I call out of the
2: blue and I That's leave a voice That's really out. old school. Oh, my yeah, God. Nice.
0: That's great. To go to our final question. So it's been great chatting with you and hearing so many of your stories and experiences before we wrap up, is there any content you'd like to recommend any blogs, books, or podcasts that you listen to or read and want to share with our listeners?
2: I think that the first 90 days is really, really practical and helpful. There is a book by Jerry Colonna, I think. Oh, Let me see if I can find the name of it. It is called Reboot. And I think it's maybe a like self-guided version to the coaching I got from Helen Appleby, which is really painful for those of us that have a deep set of insecurities and and childhood-like experiences that you prefer to sort of bury. But I think it's an essential part of becoming who you are and becoming a leader. And... I don't think I have any podcasts that are like off the beaten path right now. Like I don't, honestly, I listen to trajectory. I listen to All In every now and then. I, I do love how I built this just because it comes back to that question around like what's helped me in my role is just persistence and optimism and stories of people who <laughs> just went through really hard shit. It puts your own hard shit into perspective and tells you to just like hard enough and get back on it, you know?
0: Right. Right. That resonates. If people want to get in touch with you, is there a way they can contact you? What's the best yeah. way for them
2: to do that? The best way is to email me at kieran.luke at gmail.com.
0: Perfect. And if people want to learn about Lunchbox, where can they do that?
2: Oh my God. Lunchbox.io or follow, follow Lunchbox on uh, LinkedIn in particular, but also Twitter we have so much content. And as a quick pitch for Lunchbox, we help restaurants make more money. We provide the online ordering and customer engagement services so that uh, restaurants can sell direct and therefore avoid the 30% commission they have to pay to DoorDash or Uber Eats or wherever else we order from. And our vision is to be you know, the best food tech company in the world, akin to, a sh- to Shopify in the retail space.
0: Awesome. Check it out. Kieran Luke, thank you so much for joining us on Adventures in Growth. It's been awesome having you on. So many great stories.
2: Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, Go have an adventure.